Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Policy Studies. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Our guest this week, Tyler Cowan, is one of a kind. A truly polymathic personality, there's not much Tyler hasn't developed a pretty well-informed view on, from the merits of Bradford curry houses to the future of cryptocurrencies. And that breadth of interest is evident from his prolific writing, both on his Marginal Revolution blog, in the pages of various papers, and in the 20-odd books he's written in the last three decades and more as a professor at George Mason University in Virginia. His latest book, co-authored with Daniel Gross, is called Talent, How to Identify Energizers, Creatives and Winners Around the World. And it's a one-stop shop for companies and organisations looking to zero in on the best possible employees. I began our interview, which we recorded backstage at the CPS's Margaret Thatcher Conference on Growth, by asking Tyler a big, broad question. Is the West as a whole going through a growth crisis, or are we better off looking at countries on their own merits? I would take each country on its own merits. I'm quite optimistic about North American economies at the moment, in particular the United States. In the short run, I may be least optimistic about the UK. So continental Europe is an energy problem and a war problem that is distinct from the Anglo issues. So I would say let's disaggregate. Okay, so what makes you feel optimistic about the picture in the US. You mentioned energy costs are one thing. We control our own energy supply, right? Like it's not only that it's cheaper in terms of the planning or control premium. We can just do what we want and not have to worry too much. Are you concerned about a kind of balkanization of the world economy, the sense that we are perhaps de-globalizing a bit, having been through this long period of quite open trade? Again, it depends what part of the world you're looking at. If you look at the United States, We are sourcing less from China, but more with Southeast Asia. That, I would say, is a positive shift. There's not a decline in overall sourcing. It's better for our national security. Most of the rest seems to be as it was. Now, Ukraine and Russia is an entirely different story, of course, but I'm less bearish on globalization than many people. And I would point out, if you look at trade connections within India and China, which are huge economic units, They're far more interconnected, zero COVID policy aside, than they were 10 years ago, India in particular. And those are are extremely likely to be permanent shifts that will not be undone by, say, wars, certainly not by tariffs. So if you treat globalization as a little more broadly within the larger nations, we're doing much better than it looks. Why then 
what is it about the UK? I think we can guess kind of some of the things that have gone wrong with the UK. But what is it that specifically makes you more worried about the UK than about some of the other Western countries? You know, in the abstract, I'm extremely bullish on South England. My main worry about the UK is how many other people are worried about the UK. But one does actually have to take that seriously. So you see the markets reacting very negatively to the trust plan. Yeah. That struck me as an overreaction. But whether or not one agrees, we, we don't doubt that the markets didn't like it. It was undone. Her government fell and so on. So if you have enough negativism in a country and about a country, that's itself a problem. But the other point I would make is I think England, and I use that word deliberately, England a long time ago decided to go long on elites. So we're talking in, what, a 12th century building? It's the Guildhall. It's spectacular. There's a statue of William Pitt in the main uh, speaker's hall. We just heard from a baroness. <laughs> I mean, that's fine. I enjoy all that from a distance. I don't think you have the choice of, of changing it. But right now is a bad time in world history to have gone along on elites because elites have been screwing up. So you can either decide you're going to restructure your country to not go long on elites. I would recommend against that, but it's an yeah. option. Or just wait till elites start doing a better job. And I would just say, you know, stay the course. It's an old British saying, right? And uh, hope for the best. I do think it will work out for you. I'm afraid I do owe you an apology, Tyler, because this is actually, it's not quite as old as I thought. It's, it was built in 1440. Ah, so it's one of yeah. those recent it's buildings. Apparently, yeah. Yes. It's one of the more modern buildings in central <laughs> London. Um, we talked, you talked about, you mentioned the, the trust government there and it only lasted six weeks. What strikes me, as you said, is a lot of the actual underlying policies, I think in hindsight it feels obvious that the combination of tax cuts without kind of proper forecasts and so on was, was ill-fated or, or foolhardy. But a lot of the underlying credos struck me as quite correct, that we as a country cannot keep bumping along with what is less than 1%. Um, growth over the last decade or so, very low productivity growth as well. Do you think there's a danger that we throw everything about sort of trustonomics out with the bathwater? Uh, sure. As I understand what trust was doing, a lot of it was based on the premise that it should not cost more in tax terms to live in London than to live in New York. And that's an entirely reasonable presupposition. Now, how you get there, you can debate. Was it good political tactics? Clearly not, right? By definition, it's been overturned. But if you start with that as a premise that you want to get to that point somehow, it still seems correct. And I'm struck we're in a world where, you know, FTX, the crypto exchange that went under, yeah. that was valued at what, worth $32 billion yeah. a few months ago. And everyone's like, ha, 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 the markets, they're so silly, you can't listen to the markets. Well, okay. But then they turn around and they're like, the markets rendered their verdict on trustonomics. You know, trustonomics yeah, yeah, yeah. has to be tossed. And you can't have it both ways. I think but all sides here need to do a very deep forensic analysis why the UK with a debt to GDP ratio of like only, in quotes, only 80%, now all of a sudden absolutely has to do austerity when the country is entering a recession. So why are markets shakier now? And if that's based on some amount of illiquidity or nervousness, does a country have to fully listen to the market? I just think the answers are not obvious one way or the other. I think there's also a case of kind of politicians not really making... One thing that I would give trust is that she actually tried to make an argument rather than just kind of bumping along with the concessions. She did it in, incompetently. But I feel like there seems to be a, quite a concerning consensus that we're just in for a high-tax, high-debt world in the West. Are you concerned about that? Especially 
since the 2008 crisis that governments everywhere have just taken on enormous amounts more debt and that now we're starting to see the result of that and with money printing and all this, this era of funny money and so on. I worry a bit less about debt than some of my free market compatriots. If you look at debt to GDP ratios, they sound terrible. If you look at debt to national wealth ratios, they sound far less terrible. Right. If yeah. you start with a very different question, does the world have at its disposal much more talent now than it did 20 years ago? Yeah. You end up being pretty optimistic. And throughout the broad sweep of world history, British history, American history, uh, Good countries have done well, and debt certainly matters, uh, but talent and national resources matter more. So I think the, the well-run countries will get through this. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, you've written a book about talent, which we will we'll come on to um, shortly. I mean, what's the, it's co-authored with Daniel Gross. The venture capitalist, yes. Indeed. Uh, so what, just for our listeners' benefit, who may not, one or two of them may not have read the book, What's the kind of central thesis? Um, I've been involved with many projects in my life, some nonprofit, some for-profit. Yeah. Daniel's an angel investor, a venture capitalist. We found in every single case, what is truly scarce is talent, not money. But if you have talent, you can actually get some money. So it also turns out there's not really a go-to guide that's been written for how to find and identify talent. So we set out to do that and it is a kind of one-stop shopping book for how do you recognize talented people when you see them? How much does intelligence matter? How much does personality matter? In which ways are women different from men? And so on. Everything we think that, that we know, and a lot about what we don't know, but here's how we think about it. Yeah, I have a confession to make, which is I'm really not very good at the kind of traditional job interview. I just wonder what you think about the kind of way that companies tend to take people on. Is that actually an effective way of... of identifying the talent and assessing people. I think too many companies don't have their best people spend enough time identifying and looking for talent, that that is your ultimate resource, especially in a service sector intensive economy such as South England. Uh, interviews tend to bore everyone. They're ritualistic. Right, yeah, exactly. Uh, it's, it's all about it's prep. Jumping on. Right, yeah, now prep exactly. is important, but you yeah. can test for prep and still not know if the person is good for the job. Yeah. And when possible, they should be more open-ended, more conversational. And more and more, it's the case that a relatively small number of people add more of the value in an organization. So hiring is more like venture capital, whether we like it or not. And interview techniques do not yet reflect that. Yeah. They're ultimately about finding someone who will show up, which for many jobs is what you need. But often you need more than that. Do you think the emergence of this in the last, not just the pandemic, but in general of kind of teleworking and work, work from home, has, has made that, that search for talent easier? Um, and is that something that might fuel optimism, you know, that we can, we can basically go out to the entire world? And you do. Talent. But it's, it's harder when you're sitting in the chair having to make a choice because you're choosing yeah. from a, a much broader set. So it's easier to do well, but the process is harder. And part of our book is designed to help people get through that. We even have a whole chapter, how is online interviewing different? Is it always worse? Can it sometimes be better? Okay. So it's very much a kind of hands-on sort of That's right. go-to. For it's an actual book of what you might call advice. What do you think about it from a governmental perspective? Because one of the problems, you mentioned England being long on elite, but one of the problems we have in the UK is that we tend to have people are sort of shunted around a lot. And... That the motive to 
go into politics maybe isn't what it was. I mean, what would you say if you were in the public sector recruiting would be a good strategy to find the best people, not just to find them, but to kind of entice them into working in the public sector? I wish it were possible that your financial and tourism capital were not the same as your political capital, but it's right. too late to undo that. But it simply costs too much to live in or around London. Uh, I, I'm all for YIMBY to overcome that, but I don't think anytime soon that will change to the basic calculus. Paying people more is fine, but you could pay them, say, 10 or 15% more in real terms, which would be a kind of optimistic change. I'm still not sure that would change the basic calculus because salaries for talented people in other areas are going up more rapidly than that. Yeah, so we have a very basic economic problem here. Yes. Sure, you're, not, you're just not going to match it. So a lot of parts of governments around the world have done okay by structuring jobs in a way that will appeal to talented women, possibly with children, and giving them perks they can't get in the private sector. And we have held on because we've done that. So I think at current margins, we need to do more of that and do it better. And government will become, so to speak, more feminized. Yeah, that's a very interesting one. I think it's often underlooked, and, sorry, overlooked rather, in this, this whole um, debate. Do you think that it's something we've seen with universities a lot, especially Oxford and Cambridge here? They go out deliberately looking in places that they wouldn't traditionally have done so. Is that something that firms are doing more of these days or that they need to do more of to find people rather than, say, just all Ivy League grads or whatever it might be? The major firms I'm in touch with are all saying we can't just chase after the same Harvard and MIT grads. We need to look at, say, who's the third best student coming out of Vanderbilt right now? And that is working for them. Which is a good uni, but it's not maybe Harvard. Basically. Correct. Yeah. But, you know, within five years, we'll arrive at the same point where they're all chasing after those people too. And the real frontier, I think, is South Asia, most of all India, yeah. Nigeria to some extent, English-speaking countries where there's still plenty of super talented, super smart, driven people who maybe grow up in villages, yeah. belong to a lower caste in the case of India. And... Uh, that frontier we won't exhaust for a very long time, if ever. And that, I think, is the future and indeed the present. What's your take on kind of Western... I know this is something where it does differ a lot from country to country, but do you think that our immigration policies are sufficiently attuned to that reality? Or do they even need to be in a world where you can work remotely and so on? You know, is the US open to talent in the way it should be, for example? The US should be much more open. There's been massive backlogs in our visa processes. Uh, I would say triple the number of immigrants legally we take in each year than what we're doing now. Mm -hmm. That would make the U.S. in per capita terms like Canada. I think that is sustainable. I don't think open borders is either wise or sustainable. But uh, the U.S. could take in much more. I think it's harder for the U.K., England in particular, being a smaller country. You're going to get a lot of clustering of immigrants either in the south or you'll have some particular kinds of enclaves in the north, and neither is exactly what you might want for the immigrants coming in. And then with the background of Brexit and issues, people crossing over from France and boats and the like, I just think the politics are very hard to manage here. And uh, as a, an outsider, but it doesn't seem to me you really could manage 3x what you're doing now. No, I mean, we actually we issued about a million visas last year, so it's... Uh... The, the great kind of the Brexit, the Brexit expectation that migration would suddenly plummet has not um, has not really come to fruition. But we're actually seeing a lot more people from India, which is quite interesting. Which is good, I think. Said. And uh, 
Especially, and perhaps we'll see even more now that we have a, an Indian heritage prime minister yes. as well. But how um, much can you handle culturally, economically, politically at once? Yeah. Uh, I certainly don't know. But I it strikes me the U.S. has more latitude. Yeah, I think that, like you said, with the small boats, one of the problems is that people lump in immigration to this one big phenomenon where it's really all sorts of different journeys yes. that, are being, that are being made. So perhaps in America they might lump in sort of Mexican people or Central Americans crossing the border with everybody else as one kind of... And, and the way it's in the UK as well, it's especially lumped in with crime. It's the same government department that deals with them, which I think is quite problematic as well. I think in the US there's been this fear, well, the immigrants, they're all going to come and vote Democratic. Right. So, of course, the Republicans are against it. But we're now looking at a future where, say, 50% of Latinos maybe are voting Republican in less yeah. than five years. And I think that lowers the nervousness quite a bit. We'll see. But that's one reason why I'm optimistic. If I can ask a fairly broad question, you mentioned the state of the Republican Party there. I mean, do you think the quality of debate and of politics in America has got appreciably worse in the last 10 years? Obviously, everyone thinks, oh, it's suddenly, you know, Trump was a catastrophe for the American body politic and so on. But, I mean, has it got much worse in the last 10 years? Has it always been pretty kind of polarized and well look at the late yeah. and, you know. look at the late 19th century in American politics we've yeah. been returning to a version of that you know everything's partisan a lot of scandals a lot of fake information media are openly partisan but i would also say the very last election which we held just last week in november was a centrist election there was not a big wave in, in favor of the republicans the uh, pro-Trump candidates uniformly did poorly. Mm. Americans, I think, are settling on wanting something not too nerve-wracking. And I think American politics is in much better shape than people have been saying. There's a great overreaction to Trump, whom I have never favored. No. But that said, I don't think it's the future of my country, whether in, you know, it, through the guise of his personality or someone else's. But you yourself are sort of non-aligned, libertarian-ish. Totally exactly. non-aligned, yeah. broadly libertarian, but pragmatically so. Yeah, it strikes me that if, if I or... I think probably a lot of our listeners were in the States, they would really struggle to pick a party because the Republicans are not particularly free market and the Democrats seem to be hooked on this kind of very strange brand of identity politics, which... But that's how it should be, right? That yeah. you struggle to pick a party. <laughs> right. To sign yeah. there's some competition going on. What about Regardless the Libertarian of, Party themselves? Are they a bit sort of basket case -y? They've gone completely crazy. Right. Uh, all sorts of, like, conspiracy theories and obsession with Hillary Clinton, and now you, yeah. you can't do that. And how much of the kind of craziness of US politics... You, you mentioned the 19th century long before any of the tech we have now, but do you think that social media and the internet is making things a lot worse, or is it simply bringing to light trends that already exist? I don't know what's better or worse. I mean, I'm reminded of 17th century English history, where you have the coffee house and the pamphlet being a big deal. Yep. And that century is just full of crazy ideas. And they have some very real negative consequences, right? But at the same time, you have Isaac Newton, you have John Locke, you have John Milton, you have the growth of constitutionalism as an idea, uh, rights of man, rule of law, the common law tradition, roots of the Industrial Revolution. So it's a remarkably fertile period, perhaps more fertile than any other. And my suspicion is we're in the contemporary version of 17th century England, and it's going to hurt a lot. But at the end of the tunnel, it'll be pretty amazing. Yeah. Can we just briefly return to the talent question, then I want to move on and talk about sort of tech and FTX, which you mentioned before. But on this talent question, you've been at George Mason for more than three decades now. Um, 
teaching economics, and you were there as an undergraduate as well. One of the main ways that we assault talent is through our higher education. I just wonder where you stand on um, this debate about the value of university, because it's very it's a very live debate here in the UK, because we had for a long time this target of getting 50% of people into higher education. Is it, as your colleague Brian Kaplan, who's also at George Mason, has he's very um, bullish, not bullish, he's... He has argued that a lot of universities basically just signalling to employers that you're a certain type of person, that you can, you're intelligent and you'll jump through hoops and you're the ideal worker bee. Do you have any sympathy with that argument, given that you work in a university? I think Brian once said signalling is about 80% of a college degree. In my estimate, it would be about 30%, which is pretty high, but way below 80. You really do learn things. You learn how the world works. You learn how to deal with different personality types. You are socialised. If you do STEM, you definitely learn highly practical things. You're exposed to some very powerful minds. Brian sent his kids to Vanderbilt. They've come back like much better and much smarter. It's not just signaling. So there's plenty of signaling. There's a lot of learning. And look, with signaling, if you hire someone, as I suspect you know, within six months, you know how good they are anyway. You know, you don't need the many years of college to figure that out. So the, the costs of signaling are bounded by how long it takes to learn how good someone is on a job. And it's just not that many years. It's less than one year. So I think mostly education is about socialization, acculturation, and depending on your major, some amount of learning. But do you buy into this kind of human capital argument that if we send a larger number of people to entire education, our economy's productivity will improve? I mean, it strikes me as a quite crude way of looking at it. But the problem is the marginal student can't get through. So I don't know the UK figures, but in the US, you know, at most, what, 40% of people get through. The fact that you can't even find out the exact right number is not a positive sign, but it's below half. So if you have bad high schools or single-parent homes or troubled families, and you just shove people into college, you're doing them and the colleges a disservice. But that said, if you can imagine an equilibrium path that gets more prep and more college, that is, in fact, the right way to go. Mm I was interested because one of the things I'd like to see more of from the US here is the kind of standardised testing. Is that more of a a kind of leveller, the fact that you can go in without having had necessarily a great high school and ace the test? Some schools, yes. You are very intelligent. Some schools have moved away from standardised testing. That's bad, but it's made a comeback at MIT. I think overall it will make a comeback, especially in a country with immigrants, a lot of foreign students. You look at someone's grades, you know, from a university in Vietnam, like what does it mean even? What's their scale? What's this class? You don't know, but you look at SATs or GREs, you know, you have some norming, some sense. So one way or another, we will recreate standardized testing. And it's one of the great wonders of the modern world. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. 
You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trend says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com. And discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Sure. So we mentioned, uh, we're going to take a bit of an abrupt <laughs> conversational turn, but you mentioned FTX, which is very much in the news at the moment. Uh, we're recording this on the 14th of November, just to situate it, but Sam Bankman-Fried has suddenly become a household name, whereas perhaps before he was mainly known to crypto enthusiasts and you know, econ nerds like me. Um, what is your broad take on this, uh, on the collapse of what was the second biggest exchange? And what does it mean for the overall kind of crypto ecosystem? Well, first of all, I, I knew Sam, uh, and I'm very surprised by what happened. But in the broader history of financial markets, it's pretty common that major ventures go bust, and they go bust in ways uh, that are accompanied by bad behavior. And I think that's what we've seen here. But I think we need to draw an important distinction between crypto exchanges and crypto. So Bitcoin and other crypto assets, most of them are not down very much. So it never seemed to me that crypto exchanges were the way to do crypto. You're recreating the costs of banking systems and ultimately regulation. That the real potential for crypto is not as a replacement for money, but something, say, 5% of the world's population uses. It could be Venezuela, China, and Russia but also people who are very sophisticated and in due time will give our AI devices commands to do crypto for us because it's hard and complicated. And the idea that you do crypto through your personal wallet and not through uh, a bank-like intermediary, I think has always been the future. So this is the market sorting that out and saying these exchanges, they don't necessarily have really viable products. So, you know, they'll turn to bad behavior to make money because they have no other like clear way of proving their usefulness. And in some funny way, it's confirmed some of my priors. Yeah. When you said it's always been the future, I mean, you don't think that in sort of 30 years we'll be using crypto instead of dollars or No, that's close to zero probability. But the idea that you have a sophisticated class of traders who use it for smart contracts, for remittances, for sophisticated forms of lending, you know, using either (laughs) high-tech facilities or AI or just people who know what they're doing, strikes me as more likely than not, still not proven. Uh, But, you know, it's not that your average person has to wake up in the morning and figure out how to use crypto. And dollars, euros, British pounds work just fine. And it's been shown, you know, Bitcoin's not a hedge against inflation. I'm glad that's now proven. So let's get on with it and see what it is good for. It's part of the problem. It's hard to kind of filter out the noise because crypto enthusiasts are often so evangelical about it. That's right. And they they speak a lot of nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. So it's always like, 
I think the, there's a tendency to have a kind of very Manichaean view of things in the kind of Twitter era, where it's either everything or it's nothing, whereas it sounds like you're saying it's something. It's sort of in between. It's probably something. I call yeah. myself a crypto hopeful, but I would fully admit it is not yet proven it can be that something. Yeah. But the market price is saying it can. It's not that markets are always right. We covered that some number of minutes ago. Yeah. But you should take markets seriously. But do you think the future is a kind of proliferation of different coins, or there'll be a basic unit? I think there'll be Bitcoin and Ether slash Ethereum ecosystem. And I don't see in the short run room for a new coin. And the things we can use crypto for, it seems we have the coins. It's building the infrastructure and connecting with the ultimate users that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. So in, in the sort of same very broad tech sphere, I wonder how what your take is on the, the changing media landscape. Because in the last few weeks, it seems some huge shifts have taken place. We've seen well, Meta's share price in recent months has absolutely nosedived. Um, Twitter has a new owner, and a lot of people claim to be kind of leaving the website. Um, do, do you think these are as kind of seismic changes, or do you think in a few years we'll still be basically the same sort of sites that people are using? I think there'll be a big change in less than five years due to artificial intelligence and GPT-4. But putting that aside, that was not your question. No, no, it's fine. The, the decline in meta, I mean, there's at least two things going on. One is Mark wants to spend a lot of money on the metaverse. I applaud that. I mean, I, personally, I'm skeptical. Yeah. But I love it when ambitious, super smart people take on big projects, and I'm rooting for him. So that's great. Now, you have Elon doing that at Twitter. I'm rooting for that, too. People get their... Their knicker is in such a twist. My goodness, a guy who is not like a left-wing Democrat owns a media outlet. Heaven forbid, like I'm offended, I can't touch the thing. Like I've been reading the New York Times since I was 10 years old. Like how do I feel? Right. The great thing about being on the right is you get used to so many things and you actually in some ways I think become more rational. So when everyone's so upset, oh, Elon owns Twitter, like he went back and forth on the blue check, it's like, are you people crazy? Like... Can he experiment with his company? You know, you can just take a break from Twitter for two weeks if you don't like it. Like, it's probably better for you anyway to do that. So, obviously, it's uncertain. I think there's a very good chance Elon makes Twitter into a better and stronger company. We'll see. This is what change looks like. Bring it on, I say. How um, much do you think the big, those big companies, because they have such deep pockets... Are they in a position to recreate the kind of golden era of American capital where you had things like Bell Labs creating these amazing technologies and stuff? I mean, is that something that's kind of going on already with well, you Alphabet, see stuff like Google does and you're like, it's mind-blowingly amazing. And, Alphabet has done that yeah. now with DeepMind, with Gmail, yeah. with Google Maps, uh, upgrading YouTube, which is still undervalued by commentators. So we're, we're living in that. Yeah. Uh, it's not a hypothetical. Right now, will the metaverse through Meta succeed? Again, personally skeptical, but I've been skeptical about a lot of things that have worked. So we're seeing it. Yeah, what, I'm also skeptical. I'm just interested about. So my skepticism is because I literally just don't see why I would use it. That's exactly that mine. I and do. I have the headset. I, you know, I tried it on. I said, "Wow, this is way better than I thought it would be." <laughs> yeah. So I'm not like a puker. Everything. Oh, this is terrible. Yeah. At the same time, I don't go back to it. Yeah. There's nothing there for me. Yeah. And I love to read so much. Like, you're always competing against a book. And that's tough, given what I'm like. 
Isn't it? It's, it's, there are risks as well, though. They just sort of cannibalise their own other businesses in the process. That, well, you kind of, there's only so much social media one person could do if you're, if you're sort of spending your whole time in a virtual reality world. But keep in mind, you know, Facebook in the narrow sense, the Facebook page, is a mature market. Mm. Uh, Instagram, I'm not sure if that's a mature market, but there's an energy to senior management, Mark in particular, where you have to be doing something, and that's what makes the whole thing tick. And just take that as a constraint. You yeah. can't just sit around on your behind and, and reap your rents. And now real interest rates are higher, capital's more scarce, the value of profits from the Facebook page, like 17 years out, in real terms, is much lower than it was, you know, two years ago. So you should look for something else. Yeah. As a kind of free marketeer, actually, I found it weirdly reassuring to see Meta's Absolutely. Because it was like, no, they're not insurmountable, immovable objects, these massive companies. They shift with the tides like everything else. That's right. TikTok is a very serious competitor. Um, and we're just seeing... No one is quite sure what that landscape will look like in five years' time. Yeah, you mentioned um, just now AI and its role in the next five years. Could you just expand a bit about that? I mean, what do you see the applications of it being and how will that change that media landscape that we've discussed? Large language models, the current version being GPT-3, but GPT-4, which is much better, will be released next year. Like a coding language or an AI? You'll have to excuse my ignorance. It's an AI, so you can speak to it and do a po- I just recorded a podcast with an AI. Yeah. Not the very best AI. Uh, it's still uneven, but on some things it does remarkably so it's well. It's going to put me out of a job, basically. This was an AI created by one person, not by a huge company. You know, not OpenAI, not DeepMind. One guy kind of working, tinkering in his proverbial garage yeah. created an AI that two-thirds of it did a quite good podcast with me. So... Th- the better financed efforts are much better yet. I, I've seen demos. People will be shocked when they see what can be done now. These are not hypotheticals. It just people haven't seen it yet. And there will be new and better information aggregators for everything soon. And if you think how much of what is done, including by think tanks, by the way, is information aggregation. And there'll be this near-term future where you can speak to your AI and just ask it for things. You can ask it to write software programs, and it can do it. You can ask it for images. You can ask it to complete the, you know, the op-ed you were writing. I was it... just about to say this, because I've had an email today which reads as follows. Hi, CapEx. I hope you're doing well with managing your website. And I know how time-consuming it is to write a good blog post. Did you know you can automate your website with a <laughs> robot? I don't think they, they know how much I value my job security. But... And I, it's quite possible a robot wrote that email. It very, reads very robotically. Yes. I get endless spam of this sort thing but you can ask AIs, the best programs now, well, write something in the style of Shakespeare. And right. it is much better than you would think. Yeah. Much better. So I don't think anyone, myself included, can predict how that will matter. Mm. But it does seem to me it will change everything, including social media. And will people say on Twitter, is it you? Is it your bot? Maybe the bot's better. Maybe you won't want to follow, quote unquote, real people anymore. Maybe you won't check your Twitter feed. You'll wake up in the morning and speak to your AI. Just show me what you think I ought to see from anywhere. Yeah. And you'll visit that site instead of you know, Twitter. I don't know. Yeah. But it just seems to me it's all going to be remixed. But that sounds both kind of cool and disconcerting at the same time. Because As with social media, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it seems like, it, well, and this has already happened with social media, but it, it sort of erodes a high-trust society if you can't even tell whether you're talking to a real person. 
but maybe it increases trust in some ways. So you'll ask your AI to evaluate the trustworthiness of material. You'll ask for a separate category of gossip. Like yeah. send me the stuff that isn't true, but might be true, probably isn't true, like about FTX. Right. And you'll get all the rumors, but you'll know the rumors and they won't be mixed in with the facts. Yeah. I'm not sure that's how it will go, but I wouldn't assume it will erode trust. What about that kind of very, the, you know, uh, the thresh is going to put the harvesters out of business arguments about AI destroying tech, destroying jobs. But you always get this. Whenever a new technology emerges, you get vested interests saying, oh dear, we're, gonna, we're heading for disaster. I mean, do you think there are certain sectors that are going to be rendered obsolete by AI? And if so, is it going to be countermanded by just an enormous number of other jobs that we don't know? that we don't even imagine now that are going to exist in 20 years' time. Sure, there will be many new jobs. If you look at the generation of images for graphic art, AI is already amazing. Yeah. Stable diffusion, products on the market. But you still need someone to direct them, to give the prompts, to evaluate which are the good outputs, to integrate it with the ad campaign and so on. So the people who can work well with the AI will be a new set of jobs, often held by people who used to be graphic artists, but other people too who just like have a good eye. And we'll get through it, but look, it will be a major disruption as the Industrial Revolution was here. It wasn't maybe until the 1840s that real wages rose in Britain. And the Industrial Revolution depends when you date its start, but it was quite a few decades earlier, right? So it's going to be weird and it will feel bad. Yeah. But in the future, distant future, people will look back on it and it will be unthinkable not to have had this stuff. People talk about a kind of fourth Industrial Revolution here a lot, and they often mean quite distinct things. Sometimes it means more renewable energy and stuff like that, and other times it means tech. Right. It strikes me, given how prominent of an issue energy is uh, here in, the, in Europe, especially at the moment, um, how kind of pessimistic or concerned are you about that, that transition? And particularly the fact that so much of it seems to be directed by central fiat. Central fiat doesn't really do a good job with much of anything. But I think the energy transition has to be somewhat centralized, if only because we require accompanying deregulations for wind power, possibly for fracking, onshore, offshore wind. Like someone has to do that. Since the current laws are bad, a government has to disassemble those. And UK in particular, that's a quite centralized process. We're much more federalistic in the States. Right. So it will be centralized. I mean, Europe is moving backwards. Uh, UK less so, but the real story is China and India, and they, India is moving forwards, I would say, but China is still increasing the use of coal. It's up for grabs. What forms of energy do you see taking off in India particularly? You would imagine that solar would be pretty big. And kind of... There's a, a number of problems simultaneously. So solar can work in many parts of the country if and when they clean up their air pollution problem. They can clean up their air pollution problem if and when solar works. So I think there's some sequencing yeah. where it finally happens, and it will in large part be done by their states, because India is so huge. And small-scale nuclear, possibly fusion, some off-chance, like geothermal in a more general sense. Uh, I worry much more about food supply and construction as areas that are hard to make green. Stationary power and electric vehicles, not quite in the bag, but you can tell the, the simple story and extrapolate and Basically, that will happen. Uh, but the other areas, finding green energy is much harder. And it's just going to be this race. I don't know how well they'll do as a species.
<laughs> it is, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very basic um, question. Now, we've, we've dealt with a lot of sort of heavy duty economic stuff, but I do want to ask you about your, one of your sort of hobbies slash passions, which is dining out. You've written a book about, some years ago, about, I think it's called An Economist, an economist, an economist Does Lunch. lunch. Yes. Yeah. Um, what are, how does an economist do lunch differently to a, a lay person? What could the rest of us learn from your approach to, to eating out? Well, one way to approach food is just to know a lot about food. But there's what I call the talent approach or sociological approach, and that's just figure out who else knows a lot about food. Like, whom should you ask for advice, uh, even if you don't know much about food? I think London dining has evolved in a way similar to Manhattan dining. It's harder to find very good things in a reasonable price range that don't take too long. So the 200-pound meal here has never been better. And that's yeah. phenomenal and amazing. Uh, the 30-pound meal probably is worse and getting worse yeah. because of rents and, and NIMBY type of problems. When I'm in London, I tend to go to places like Gymkhana or Trishna, the kind of one-star or two or three-fork Michelin Indian places that I find are... Have you been to Dishoom? Dishoom I quite nice. like, absolutely. Yeah. That's more of a sort of 40 pounds. Yeah. Not too bank-breaking. So looking ethnic, eastern parts of London, south of the river, is where you can do better. But yeah. it's hard, even though there's this incredible plenitude of riches. But when you're here on the street, it's a bit like, well, like that was quite good, but was it really worth for two, like 120 pounds? Like, I feel not. And Chinese food in London is not amazing. There's some places... Uh, it's very much Hong Kong as well. Like yeah, like if you're in the Virginia yeah. suburbs, you just eat Asian, a full meal is below $20, and standards are quite high. And that's what I do with my actual life. Yeah. A friend of mine actually has a podcast. I'm going to shamelessly name drop here. It's one of, the, one of the biggest podcasts in the UK. It's called Off Menu, and it's a sort of, you have to choose your dream starter, main dessert, and so on. I'll, I'll do a truncated version, which is what would be, if you had to choose one restaurant, which would it be? I'd take the train up to Bradford and look in that Pakistani Not necessarily in the UK, but yeah, go And look in that row they have and see like what now is the hottest restaurant. I couldn't tell you, but it's not hard to find out. Yeah. So I'd rather eat in Northern England. Uh, fish and chips in Northern Ireland is way better than like anywhere in Southern England. So just like the periphery, Scotland, I've never much liked the food. I hope I'm not insulting anyone, but I don't. I'm a big haggis enthusiast, but yeah. 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 So I would say uh, the peripheries of England would be my choice. All right. Well, that's a, a lovely note. So get up to Bradford for a curry if you uh, want to experience the finest of British Indian cuisine. Tyler, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a, a wide-ranging and uh, very entertaining discussion. And uh, thank you all at home for listening. As ever, do tune in for the next episode of the CapEx podcast. And uh, thanks very much. Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trend says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y dot 
and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.